Hello all, glad you came. Adult ADHD demands that I ask everybody to stand up. If, if you're able to stand, if you're not, just raise your hand. But we need to, you know. It's been pretty intense. <laughs> Body break. <laughs> yeah, just breathe a bit. Yeah. White people, sit down. White people, sit down. Black folk, I'm talking to you here. This story that I'm sharing, these excerpts, yes. These excerpts that I'm going to read are the story of your blood and bone. Yes? The stories that I'm about to share come from your lineage. So I want you in particular to pay attention to what is shared. I know I only have 10 minutes, well, probably nine in a bit. But take it in viscerally, especially if you're black and female. Because I'm sharing stories um, drawn from the lives of Sally Bassett and Mary Prince, two of our great martyred revolutionaries some of whose descendants are more than likely among those standing here. I'm talking about your family. So everybody clear about that? Okay, take a seat. Okay, this is, uh, is this mic on? Yeah. Okay. I'm drawing a couple of excerpts from my upcoming book entitled A Tale of Two Women. Sally Bassett, uh, Mary Prince, and the true story of slavery in Bermuda. Because history. The, uh, Hello? Yeah? That's good? Okay. Because the, who gets to tell the story is, uh, the story of Bermuda is contested ground. Right? For so long, there have been writers and historians, at least they wear the guise of writers and historians, who have spun a very specific story of slavery in Bermuda, which I feel is an affront to my ancestors. And part of my, uh, my moral obligation is to bring those ancestors' stories into the room. Right? So this is what I'm uh, to share here. This is from the chapter simply called, Kill Them All. Wherever whites imposed chattel slavery upon Africans, fierce resistance inevitably followed. Bermuda, a tiny subtropical backwater more than 600 miles east of the Carolinas, was not exempt from this trend. Some local and foreign historians have claimed that the relationship between the enslaved Bermudian and the Bermudian enslaver was comparatively amicable. They argued that the, pres the absence of the plantation system, combined with the fact that blacks and whites lived and worked closely together, somehow fostered a refreshingly collegial atmosphere that magically dissolved any enmity between the owners and their shackled property. These, <clears throat> these historians repeatedly opined that relations between the races in Bermuda were so much better than in other less enlightened locales. If we take their statements to be true, it would logically follow that such a tranquil and harmonious social climate would likely not trigger the viral spread of righteous bloodlust among the enslaved. So why then, 
would the island's blacks plan to embark upon a premeditated orgy of mass murder with the intention of slaying their white compatriots down to the last man, woman, and child? Put another way, how do we reconcile the image of the happy black slave and the gentle white master with the jarring reality of the conspiracy of 1761? In that year, more than half of the island's enslaved black population conspired to murder their way out of bondage by killing all of the white people, an action that would simultaneously abolish slavery in Bermuda and allow them to assume total control of the island. Now, this was 30 years before Haiti was liberated. So that's before they started the revolution that would lead to their, um, their emancipation and the um, abolition of slavery in 1804 in Haiti. The scope of the conspiracy reflected a great deal of planning. Firstly, poisoners would be enlisted to lace their owners' food and dwellings with poisons that would bring about their death. This initial strike would be followed by the systematic killing of owners and their children in their beds, along with the murder of those blacks who were adjudged to be on the side of the whites. By the end of the bloodshed, all of Bermuda's nearly 5,000 whites would be dead and the 4,000 or so enslaved Africans would be free, the unquestioned masters of the realm. On the evening of the 12th of October, however, a secret discussion related to the uprising was overheard by a white seaman named John Vickers, who alerted others of the grave threat to white life posed by the plotting of the conspirators. Vickers' raising of the alarm the following morning set in motion a series of events that the whites desperately hoped would keep them out of harm's way. Martial law was declared, and each parish was required by law to assign teams of watchmen to monitor free and enslaved blacks. Legislation was also passed to further constrain the movement of the island's blacks and to facilitate the expulsion of free blacks from Bermuda. Of particular note, I think this is very important, of particular note, is that whether enslaved or free, black Bermuda held its collective tongue. They refused to divulge any, any details of conspiracy and its principal architects in spite of repeated offers of manumission and financial reward. And it is because of their willingness to remain silent that although the actual number of conspirators was surely greater, only six people, five men and one woman, were eventually found guilty lynched and burned. Yeah. Now we're going to jump to um, um, Mary Prince's story. And I'm going to try to run through this quickly. How am I doing for time? What? Golly. OK. <clears throat> Both captain, uh, this is called, she stripped me and flogged me, slash he beat me till I was unable to stand. This is in benign, peaceful Bermuda, where slaves and slave masters were just happy all the time. Both Captain Ingham and his wife, who was also named Mary, reveled in the violence that they inflicted upon the enslaved people in their charge. In the Ingham household, neither age nor sex could exempt the victims from their cruelty. Mary witnessed many instances where cap the captain's wife terrorized Jack and Cyrus, two little enslaved boys. Whenever she felt so inclined, she pinched them, peppered them with hard blows, and beat them until the whip lacerated their flesh. Mrs. Ingham's penchant for sexual sadism, a perverse interest shared by her husband, revealed itself in the habit of torturing young Mary by stripping her naked, suspending her by her wrists, and savagely whipping her. Indeed, 
Mary's descriptions of Mrs. Miss Ingham's many acts of savagery put to rest the unfounded belief that white women were not actively and enthusiastically engaged in carrying out the physical and sexual violence suffered by the enslaved. Captain Ingham proved himself to be his wife's equal in terms of his capacity to abuse the vulnerable. Mary describes in graphic detail the beating that he gave to the pregnant Hetty, during which time during which he had to stop several times because the force and frequency with which he swung the whip and brought it down upon Hetty's naked body left him all but spent. So severe was the beating that Hetty went into premature labor, ultimately giving birth to a stillborn baby whom she was not permitted to mourn. With her body bloated by infection and her heart heavy with the catastrophic loss of her child, Hetty soon succumbed to her wounds. Mary herself almost met the same fate after Mr. Mrs. Ingham blamed her for breaking a clay jar that was, in fact, already badly cracked. For this crime, she whipped Mary unmercifully, only abandoning the assault when fatigue overtook her. Mr. Ingham, upon hearing Mary's offense, promised to beat her the next day. And true to his word, at noon the following day, he whipped Mary until he was exhausted. He would likely have beaten her to death after catching a second wind, were it not for the providential intervention of an earthquake. In the resulting chaos, Mary was able to crawl under the steps of the veranda where she remained, clinging to life until morning. Now, in, again, in light of the uh, time, I wanted, to, I wanted to make clear the fact that slavery was not benign. Never was it benign. When your humanity is ripped from you as a precondition for the establishment of what we know as Western civilization, when your immutable humanity is the foundation upon which white wealth has been built, you cannot begin a conversation talking about the suffering of my ancestors because I feel this very viscerally, understand this, I feel this very viscerally, as something that wasn't as bad as in the United States because they had plantation slavery. We are doing a, a, a disservice. We, in fact, we are doing a violence to our ancestors when we speak of their suffering as anything other than hellish. I think that's very important, a very important um, point to make because Bermudian historians and writers, both Bermudian and foreign, have this habit of, and I'll just give you an example of, of, of minimizing our suffering. This is by James E. Smith, writing in Slavery in Bermuda. He states that Bermudian, black, enslaved black Bermudians were treated more humanely than those in the Caribbean and that Bermudian enslavement encouraged a degree of intimacy and personal contact between master and slave. I think Mary Prince would beg to differ. I'm fairly certain that Sally Bassett would as well. I'm absolutely positively sure that the, if they could speak, the heads that were on, affixed to the spikes along Gibbet Island would, would um, issue a dissenting opinion. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>